0: Come on in. Come on in. Sneak in the side. Come on in. I'm looking at you now. Come on in. That's good. Well, first off, I want to apologize, okay? I want to apologize and provide an explanation. I actually really did think I was on time early in this first service, (laughs) but what happened was, okay, what happened was my church for for, uh, pastor's appreciation gave me a watch. This is a cool watch. It supposedly winds itself when you do this. Well, I don't wear it all the time, so I had it sitting on my bedside table, and I put it on this morning, assuming it said the right time. Apparently, I was about nine minutes behind. So I fixed it. We're back to go. See, it really wasn't my fault. See, really wasn't my fault. Justifying myself up here. No, it's always my fault. I am a long-winded dude. So, Um, all right, so we're gonna jump in. I've got for sure... Two sessions for us this afternoon, and then we'll see what you got to do for q and uh, I'm gonna try to get through what we can get through. We started with, we're on t- the topic of Christian worldview, and this is uh, my thesis for today. The Christian worldview is a comprehensive story of a sovereign God who is there and who is not silent. That's the words of Francis Schaeffer. It's a story that has been revealed to us through the scriptures and tells us who God is, who we are, what is wrong with the world, and what God has done to make it right. This story also tells us what we are to do with our lives as citizens of his kingdom until Jesus returns to set up that eternal kingdom on this earth. So the Christian worldview is a vision of life That illuminates everything. Could somebody please say everything? everything. <clears throat> All right, everything. There is not one inch of life that won't be affected by your Christian worldview. Okay? Your Christian worldview will get in, if you let it, it will get in everything. Now, some people might say, well, I reject the Bible story, I don't base my worldview on faith. I base my worldview on things that I can see. Well this is fairly popular today but that is actually not true. Hopefully we've learned that in the first session. Every worldview begins with a faith commitment. You can't get away with that, away from that. Faith is an essential part of human life. We are by nature, because we, we know we are made in the image of God, we are believing and trusting creatures. We are religious by nature. There has never been a, religion, a religionless society, ever. God has made us this way, and where we place our faith determines the worldview we will adopt. The person who says, I don't base my worldview on faith, I base it on science, or the scientific method or rationalism on things that I can see. That person is making a faith commitment to materialism or a faith commitment to rationalism. How do you know, we would ask this person, how do you know that God doesn't exist? Well, science can't find him. Well, By definition, science cannot. We can go back to this little drawing here. The natural world, science was invented, right, to deal with what? Phenomenon in the natural world. So when God exists out here and science says, we can't find him, he can't be there. You know what that's like? That's like the drunk who can't find his keys and he's looking under the street light and you go, hey man, is this where you lost your keys? He says, no, but this is where the light's good. The natural world, right here. This is science. Science can deal with this. Science cannot deal with this. So, a rationalist or a materialist has to make a faith commitment. I know that God doesn't exist, and this is all there is, when he can't prove that at all. Okay? So it starts with a faith commitment. Now, what is a faith commitment? A faith commitment is the way Human beings answer four basic questions facing everyone. Every human being has to answer these four basic questions. One, who am I? Or what is the nature, task, and purpose of human beings? What am, am I an animal? What am I? Am I a spirit? What am I? Everybody has to ask that or answer that. Two, where am I? Or what is the nature of the world and the universe that I live in? Three, what's wrong? Right? We clearly, everyone would tell you there's something wrong with the universe, there's something wrong with the world. What is the basic problem or obstacle that keeps people from attaining fulfillment? You could also say, how, how do you understand evil? Where does evil come from? Fourth and final, what is the remedy? What is the solution? How is it possible to overcome this hindrance to my fulfillment? We, we would say it like this in order, in other words, how do I find salvation? Right? So, where do I come from? What's the meaning of life? Where do I live at? What's the problem with life? What's, what's, the, what's the problem? And then, lastly, what is the solution? The way you answer those questions will settle our faith onto something. Okay, listen, every society in the history of the world has asked and answered those questions. From Hindu cultures to Native American cultures, every culture has to ask and answer those questions. And how you ask them and how you answer them will determine the worldview and ultimately the culture that you create from that worldview. So what we want to see this afternoon is how does the Bible answer those questions, right? How does the Christian worldview answer those questions, What is the Christian story of everything? And as an introduction, the best thing to do is to zoom out 30,000 feet and take a look um, at this story and basically what we're gonna do is I'm gonna break this story down into five chapters, okay? Five chapters on the story of God or the story of everything, We'll go right here. We'll go God. Oh, I don't want to put that. God. Creation. Fall. Redemption. Consummation. Sorry, my writing is horrible. I don't even know why I'm doing it. All right, God. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Now, if you've been around Sacred City for a while or the Porterbrook material or, or, you know, in gospel coalition circles, you've probably heard of like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I don't think that's the most helpful way of articulating things. I don't think it's the way the Bible articulates it. I think the Bible begins in the beginning God. God, creation, fall, redemption. And then this could be redemption slash restoration. God's redeeming and restoring now, and then consummation, what's gonna look like when it all gets finished. Now, these are chapter headings. I want you to think of this as chapter headings. We're gonna fill out some stuff underneath this. I really like more color. Let's do that. Um, So what's gonna happen is these are chapter headings, and there's gonna be a lot of detail that gets filled out underneath this. Now listen, from 30,000 feet, every Christian has to believe these chapter headings. There's gonna be some detail when we get down in here that we're gonna disagree on in interpretation of of certain scriptures. But these five chapter headings, we have to agree on at least these chapter headings. If you take one of these out, you're off the reservation, you're no longer a Christian. You might keep the name, you're not a Christian. Okay, Mormons, things like Jehovah's Witness, things like that, off the reservation, not Christian. Okay, we can get into that if we need to. All right, so let's just start with uh, in the beginning, God. Now we could go to Genesis chapter one one. I want you guys to tell me what do we learn about God in Scripture? Just I know, just big. Give me some big things here. What? He's good. Okay, God is good. Omnipotent. Huh? Holy. Thank you. Just. omniscient, all-knowing, can't write that one right now, all-knowing, huh, triune, come on now, now we're getting some good places, triune, eternal, excellent, these are excellent points, all right, now listen, we're going to get later. We, so let me just flip here because this is what we're going to do the next time. We have a closed system, the natural world. Okay? Well, and I'm going to make a circle here just because, but, and then we have God. What we're going to talk about next talk is there's only two worldviews there's oneism or there's two-ism. There's the natural world and God or there's just the natural world. That's the only two worldviews that there is available. Now, we name a lot of different things. We'll get into that later. But I want you to see, when we say God is holy, that is one of the most important descriptions of God. It means God is other than the natural world. He is other than. He is unique unto himself. And those unique qualities in and of himself are he is always good omnibenevolent he is omnipotent he is holy he is always just he is all knowing he's triune he's eternal those are things you cannot get from inside creation they come from outside creation they can't come from a transcendent that's another word we could use a transcendent god okay so we go to Genesis 1 we see god is eternal he already existed the bible doesn't tell us where god came from why because god is the uncreated Creator. He is ultimate reality. Scripture does not tell us where he comes from. It assumes 2 There are only two categories of being, God and creation. We see that God is triune. That's unique for us. That means at the center of creation, or at, I'm not sorry, no, no. That was heresy. Take that back. At the center of the universe is a relational being, personhood at the center. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They exist in an eternal relationship of love. At the center of the universe is a love relationship. So we ask ourselves, why are we relational? Why do we desire community? Why do we want to connect? Because at the center of all that is a God who is Trinity. Okay, no other worldview, no other worldview has that. All right, so, it's inev- we have to begin here when we're thinking about our worldview. Everything, every question, what should I do with education? How should I educate my children? Or what, what, what kind of job should I take? All of these questions, we have to begin with God. Who is God? Has God spoken to this? Something, something along those lines, okay? And as we, see, as we will see later, if we don't begin with God, we will inevitably Begin with an aspect of creation that will ultimately become an idol. And that's what every other worldview does it takes a piece of creation or a false God at the center or starting point and then it works out from there. The Christian worldview always begins with God, His nature, His character, His will. It doesn't begin with what do we think, what do we want, what do we desire, what do we think is best. It starts with God, all right? Second chapter, creation. What does the biblical account of creation tell us about the world? Where did it come from? <clears throat> okay, so it comes from God. So I'm just going to say separate from God. Okay? Spoken, ex nihilo. It comes, God speaks it out of nothing, right? Out of Himself, He speaks ex nihilo, and it's created out of nothing. There was nothing, God spoke it, it came into existence. What else? It's good, it's beautiful. What else do we learn about creation? Ooh, what? Oh, there's an order. Okay, order. Good. Mm -hmm. There's order. He separates things, right? He's separating night from day. Yeah, order, separation. Six days. Okay. I don't really know how to do that for just six days, I guess. All right, what else? Anything else? Okay, so all creation was was meant to be in relationship and harmony with God. Harmonious, it was meant to be harmonious. Let's use that word. Okay, harmonious, submit uh, in relationship to God. Um, How about this? It was a Trinitarian endeavor. Right? We see God the Father speaking. John 1 tells us Jesus was the Word. We see the Spirit hovering over the deep, right? So it was a Trinitarian endeavor. Okay? So one of the things that we need to see here, this first one, like it was separate from God, we need to know that creation is not ultimate. Right? Creation is not ultimate. It's maybe penultimate, but it's not ultimate. God is ultimate. Creation is ultimate not god there's distinction between those two things okay now what does creation tell us about who we are what is our nature and purpose for life created by god for god okay i like that by god for god amago day big word a big word with a lot of, lot of. there's some punch in that word. What do we mean when we say imago Dei? What does that mean? Yeah. What that? Yeah, imago Dei means, it's Latin for in the image of God. In the image of God. We're made in the image of God. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Now there's not one right answer. There's a lot of stuff. So this is what it means. Listen, if we want to know what we're for, part of that needs to go look at God. And we're, we're created to mirror his image. All right? So we see that in, Relationships. I've already given that one up. We're relational, we're relational beings because God's a relational being. What else? We are creative because He's created. He is crea- He's creator. Now, our creation is a lot different. Like we take stuff and make nice stuff. God took nothing and made everything, right? So we're in a different category, but yes. What else? What did God tell us to do? caretakers excellent of creation missional go we have a mission what's the mission come on now multiply be fruitful and multiply we're called to our cultural mandate the calling that God called us to is multiply get married create a family spread over the face of the earth and what make disciples what else Sub, subdue creation. Take dominion over the creation. This is called the cultural mandate. In this mandate, theologians tell us, was the command to go to the moon. All right? God was giving us creation and saying, be my sub-lords over it. All right? Make, here's, here's the garden. Invent stuff. Chop down that tree. Build a fire. See what happens. <laughs> you know, like... Make cities, make towns, learn irrigation, learn all these things. All of that was in the command to take dominion over the culture. So we are made in the image of God. We're made relationally. We're made to go be fruitful and multiply. Having a family is one of the most important callings of a human being, and specifically a Christian. Okay? What else do we know? Anything else? What does the Westminster Confession tell us is our purpose? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what, we, that's what we're meant to live for. So everything we do, all of our relationships, all of our baking, all of our working, all of our creating, all of that is meant to be done in such a way that it gives glory to God and we enjoy him in the process forever because he's given us all these good gifts, right? All right, so we learned some things about creation. Oh, no, we, what else? In the beginning, he made them Man and woman, male and female. In the beginning, he made them male and female. So we see distinction between sexes. Okay? That's just some, there's, there's a lot here. We have a lot of distinction in the creation event. Heavens and earth, water, land, animals, sexes, lots of 2 Okay? All right, let's jump over here. The fall happens. Wah, wah. What happened? What do we know about the fall? What happens when the fall happens? This is the fall. They fell from grace. Adam and Eve sinned. What happened? Separation from God. Cursed. What does that curse look like? The earth is cursed. Thorns now happen. Animals want to eat us. <laughs> like, right? And we, we're going to eat them. Uh, that happens. What else What else happens with the curse? Pain. Ladies. Ah, from the... Yeah. She, yes. Ch- pain and childbearing. That's still a thing, right? Still a thing, okay? What else? Men, what gets cursed? Work gets cursed, okay? Exposes our need for our Savior. So we have this separation and we know there's something wrong with us. So exposes our need for a Savior. Yep, what else happens in the fall? Anything else? Ooh, indicates there's an enemy in the garden. There's a battle with a serpent there. Okay, Adam and Eve, that dragon language from that first one, there's a dragon in the garden, a serpent, whatever. He's in the garden, and he's tempting, and they fall to it, and there's going to be this ongoing battle with Satan. <clears throat> so there's an enemy. What else? Oh, man, so good. Ejected from Eden. So this perfect place that God created for them, they get booted, and they can never get back Steinbeck his, his book East of, you know, East of Eden that's, what, that's where we get that mentality from they're away from perfection shame okay okay now this is perfect so all of these things were outside of us now we're noticing there's something actually when we get cursed something inside of us something inside breaks too they're naked, and now all of a sudden they feel shame, <clears throat> okay? So they, they recognize there's something wrong with me, right? There's something wrong with me. Have, I'm separate from God. I've sinned against God, and there's even something, some kind of embarrassment here between husband and wife, okay? Here's one. <clears throat> we don't think about this very often. <clears throat> so we see relationship with God is broken. Relationship with creation is broken, Relationship with the wife, family is broken. Their relationship with their self is broken. Theologians call this the noetic effects of the fall. That something happens inside the human psyche that twists it in such a way that we're now even at odds with ourself. The noetic effects of the fall affect our ability to think rightly, That means, to think rightly means to think in line with the word of God and with God, because God is reality. So if you think differently than God, then you're in chaos. You're not in rightly ordered universe, okay? So to think rightly, to love what is right, not what is wrong, to desire what is right, to will or choose what is right, so because of the curse of the fall, we are now at odds with ourself and our own human flourishing. This is why we need the book of Proverbs. Don't go down that path. It's going to end in death. Don't do that. That's foolish, right? We still need that. So what does that tell you about our own human attempts at philosophy and worldview. Futile, bro, great word. Absolutely futile. Futility, I'm gonna write that down, I love that word. Futility, but I, yeah, futility. Futile, why? We have the noetic effects of the fall. We think sinfully. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways. Right? So anytime you're trying to create a system of thought or a worldview from inside that closed system, it's always going to be futile. Now, that does not mean they get everything wrong. Right? Anybody can point at something and say, that's blue, you know, most of the time. But it doesn't mean but it means their worldview collectively cannot get it all right. And it cannot be consistent. Okay, so we see all this is going on. We have an adversary. So again, we're going back to this questions. Let me just ask it this way now. So, what is wrong with our world? Separated from God. Okay? Broken. Us. That's great. Those that's what? Okay. We strive to be God. We don't want to image God. That's good. Yeah, what do you think is wrong? What is wrong with our society? But it's all coming down to this, right? It's all, we, what, what one word could we name all those things? Sin, that's it, right? It's ultimately sin. Now, I know we're like, oh, sin, you know? But everything we hate about this world is sin. Violence, right? The brokenness that we see, the poverty that we see, all of that is, is a consequence of sin, Right? All of that's a consequence of sin. So the Bible tells us the human problem is separation from God, right? Sin, that's the problem. Now, what is the solution? What is God's solution? (laughs) Christ, but yes, let's, let's just put Christ, that's for sure. Um. Where do we see it in the beginning of Genesis? Now, this is something that gets on my nerves. Gets on my nerves when people believe that this idea of redemption just magically appeared in the New Testament with Jesus, okay? People say things all the time like, oh, we don't follow the Old Testament anymore. We don't even need to read the Old Testament anymore. The Old Testament was law, and we're under grace, okay? Okay? There's a sliver of truth in that which makes it really dangerous, okay? But we see redemption immediately in the garden. Immediately in the garden. What happens when they sin? They're naked, hiding in the bushes. What happens? What? Even before God clothes them, he pursues them. He asks them questions. He pursues them. Listen, just in that first image, we already see the prodigal son prodigal son wasn't the first guy to go waste his money and go you know end up in the pigsty adam was hiding in the bushes naked (laughs) same thing as the younger brother right so and what do we see god doing pursuing that's grace moving forward toward a sinner that's who god is by the way nobody said gracious in all these things but that's okay god is also gracious right the act of creation we should have said gracious i'm writing that down You know why? God didn't need us. God was eternally happy all by himself. Why? He had the son of God and the spirit. You don't don't really play a part in that, okay? They're eternally happy in themselves. So what does he do? Because he's omnibenevolent and he's gracious, out of his abundance of love, he creates people to put love on, not to receive love from Doesn't need our love. Doesn't need anything from us. Okay? So God is gracious in the very beginning. Adam and Eve sin. He pursues them. Then what does he do? Somebody said it over here already. Christian said it. He kills animals. He kills animals. He sacrifices something else. He said, the soul that sins, it will die. If you sin and disobey me, death is the repercussion. But instead of killing Adam and Eve, he takes something in its place a substitutionary atonement in its place. He takes animals kills them and clothes them and then enters into a covenant with them, enters into a covenant with them, right? And and it's a gracious thing that he sends them out of the garden because he doesn't want them to eat the tree of of life and live forever in that broken state. It is better to be sent away from the presence of God to eventually die than it would be to live in the presence of of the eternal life, tree and continue to eat that forever in a state of separation, your soul separation and sinful state. It's better to be sent away and die, right? And then we see this. What is the the promise? We already talked about the serpent. He gives the, it's called the proto-evangelion, the first ever gospel presentation. He says, there's going to be, from your offspring, Adam and Eve, there's always going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Adam and Eve, right? So there's going to be this there's gonna be people that love God and there's gonna be people that hate God. It's always going to be that way and then out of the seed of the woman will come a snake crusher. He will crush the head of the serpent but the serpent will bruise his heel, right? So he will, take a, he will destroy one but he'll take a mortal wound in himself. Obviously, then we see this play out all through the Old Testament. Every time blood shows up, every time a priest shows up, every time a covenant is cut, All of this is the outworking that God doesn't give up on his creation. He's gracious, and even though we fall, he will come and he will redeem. So we see this cycle over and over and over in the Old Testament. A promise of redemption, a promise of redemption. All the power of the Old Testament sacrifices. The animals didn't have any power. Their blood didn't have any power. The power was all pointing forward to the reality, which was Jesus if we didn't have the Old Testament sacrifice and Jesus showed up and says, I'm the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, everybody would have been like, this guy thinks he's a lamb? (laughs) Right? The only reason it makes sense is because of the Old Testament. Okay? You have to understand the first three chapters. There's a lot of chapters, right? First chapters and understand what happens afterwards. Okay? Now, And and we can see this through David. We can see this through um, Noah. We see this in Moses. We see this in David. We see this in the prophets. We see this in Daniel, Rahab. God was gracious to his people, all right? God was gracious over and over and over. So if somebody says something to you like the Old Testament God was mean and I'm more into the New Testament God, please correct them. They don't know what they're talking about. There is only one God and he's... Never changed, he didn't like mature, like he went through puberty in the Old Testament and finally matured into a nice guy, you know? He's always the same. He's always the same, All right? All right, the reason we don't like the God that looks, that's in the Old Testament is because that God has a lot of hard and fast rules that make it very clear that we're not him. All right, I'm gonna get to that maybe a little bit later. All right, so we have Jesus, who is Jesus? Hmm? The Messiah. It's a latent term. The Christ, the promised Savior of the world. Who else? Son of God. The Lamb. Okay, when we say he's the Son of God, that means he was here, right? He was here at creation. He didn't just appear. He's the Word of God. Brilliant. Brilliant. Son of man, he's a man, he's 100% man, 100% God. Emmanuel, God with us. God, the eternal spirit, put on flesh and dwelled among us. King, king, Oh, I like it. That's right, he's the king. Let's go to Colossians chapter one. Start in verse 15. <clears throat> I'm hearing Bible's turn, I like it, my favorite sound. When you're there, say there. All right, let's read it. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That's the incarnation, right? Jesus the Eter- was always with God, Puts on flesh. Now he's the image of the invisible God. We we want to know what the God the Father, God the Spirit. It looks like God. We look at Jesus. Right. Keep going. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, I want to say this like this. For by Jesus, he's the Word. All things were created in heaven and on earth. Somebody say all things. Okay. Visible and invisible. by the blood of his cross. Now flip over to 2, chapter 9. Chapter 2, verse 9, I'm sorry. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, so the godness of God, dwells bodily. The godness of God dwells completely in Jesus. All right, so Jesus was not just some first century carpenter, right? Some enlightened man. He was the son of God. He was God of gods who put on flesh and dwelled among us, right? And how are, how does, let me just say this. How are we redeemed? This should be, that you guys, this is, I lob this up, come on. Okay, we're made new by the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus do to make that happen? On he rose again. Dies on the cross. First off, he obeys the law perfectly in our place, never sins, okay? Then he takes our sin on himself, dies the death that we deserve on the cross, right? Pays that penalty that we owe to God, right? Then God reminds him, hey, you had no debt, bro. Come on, get up. Jesus gets up out of the grave because he, he had a sinless life. He has an, the power of an indestructible life. Hebrew says he gets up. God the Father receives that payment. Jesus with his very own blood pays our price. The Father receives it. The Father, Jesus is resurrected, proving that he's the Son of God. He has power over death. He is ascended, seen by over five hundred people. Ascends to the right hand of God, and then the Father and the Son do what? Send the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit comes into us, convicts us of our sins when we hear the gospel, and we're saved. Okay? All of that is the work of who? God. God the Father. He plans it. He elects. He sends. Jesus agrees. Jesus comes. Jesus lives. Jesus dies. Jesus rises. Jesus is glorified. Then the Holy Spirit is sent, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction. The Holy Spirit gives us faith. The Holy God, the Trinitarian God... Does all of that work? Right? So, when we say what's wrong with our world and we basically say sin, the Bible's answer is what? What's the remedy for that? God. God. First and foremost, prime reality God, not us. Not our efforts, not our works. God. All right? So, this is the chapter that we're living in right now. We are living in the redemption slash restoration chapter of the story of God. Hebrews 9.27 says it like this. It is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. Right now, redemption is available to sinners if they hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ but this is a limited time offer. All right? I think this might be my last, no, I got a couple more. So where is Jesus right now? Right hand of the Father? Anybody else? In heaven? In our hearts? He dwells in our hearts by faith, yes, that's true. Don't really like that language too much, but it, but it's true. But we can get off, we can lose him there sometimes. If we don't remember, he's not just the itty bitty Jesus in my heart that I accepted at youth camp. He's also the exalted king of the universe sitting at the throne room of God at the right hand of the Father. The way that I say it, in the control room of the universe. What is he doing? What's he doing there right now? Ruling, interceding for us, making all things new, reigning there, holding all things together, Colossians told us. Hebrews 15 24, then until Jesus comes again, uh, until Jesus returns, Hebrews 15 24, then comes the end. When he, Jesus, listen, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he, Jesus, must reign until he, Jesus, has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus is ruling and reigning until he puts everybody under his feet, all of his enemies under his feet. Does that sound like Jesus is going to lose from the throne room? Does it now listen? Josiah asked earlier, what do, what do, can I talk about? Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. millennialism. I we can get into the debates about this, and I've written a commentary on the, the book of Revelation that you can go and it breaks down all those points. I don't think you have to talk about all those to have a hopeful eschatology. If he's if Jesus is in the throne room, is Jesus a loser? That's all you have to ask. If he's a loser, then you should be really fearful. And you should buy a bunker, okay, and a lot of ammo, right? But it, oh, but if he's not a loser, you can have hope. You can have hope, right? So, just to be clear, what is wrong with the world? Separation from God. The world is separated from God. The world is in rebellion against God, and the only hope for our world is found in Christ. Jesus doesn't just want to save people and zap them up to heaven. Jesus wants to save people and renew all things, all of creation, it tells us in Colossians and and Ephesians. He's wanting to renew and he's wanting to restore. So, while we live in this chapter, what are we supposed to be doing? How are we to live? Advancing his kingdom. How do we do that? making disciples, preaching the gospel. Let's go back. Restoring our cities. All right, anybody, yeah, yeah, that's true. Go back here. What, remember, what was the original plan for mankind? Spreading out her, Spreading her out, out across the world, making good God-honoring culture. Dominion, taking dominion over things. Glorifying God. Worshiping God. Mul- there it is. Multiplying. Deanne got that both times, okay? <laughs> both times, she got that. <laughs> we're, we're to be raising godly children. We're to be building godly families with Jesus Christ at the center of that. We're to be planting churches and renewing our city for the glory of God. Now, listen, and I already talked about this in the first, every single one of our vocations is meant to be done as if Jesus Christ is, is the ruling, reigning king of the universe right now. Every one of our vocations are meant to bring about the good. Of creation, the human flourishing as if the fall hadn't happened. Now we know the fall has happened, and so they all got to be things. These things have to be redeemed and restored and brought under the lordship of Christ. Do you know how to do your job or your vocation, if you're stay-at-home mom or whatever, with Christ as Lord? Do you know how to do that? you don't that's what you need to find out you need to learn how to the gospel applies to that thing i have no idea how much i'm over am i over it's my all, all right i have all afternoon cool all right i'm gonna move on chapter last chapter right here consummation o, open your bibles to revelation chapter 21 you there say there let's read it then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adored for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold The dwelling place of God is with man. Okay, the original problem was separation from God, right? We could no longer be in his presence because we had sinned. We ran and we hid from him. Look how the problem gets solved. New city coming down out of heaven, renewing this whole cosmos so that we, human beings, Christians, can dwell together with God on this planet, keep going. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now stop right here. This is, most people, their conception of heaven sucks because they've been told that it's just a place without sin and it's just a place, you know, it's like a lot of clouds and there's little fat chubby babies playing harps and, you know, your great grandma's going to be there. And, oh, don't worry, we're going to sing worship songs all day long. People are thinking, I don't know if I want to go there. Heaven is only heaven because God is there. The most thrilling being in the universe the one who invented sex, okay, invented it. It could have been like bumping knuckles, okay? That's what it could have been, but instead he's like, oh, I got something good for him, right? He invented that. The the, the height of pleasure he invented. He is that. He is the source of all goodness, joy, happiness, pleasure. Everything you want in life is him, okay? And we get to be face-to-face with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Can you probably walk on water and do all that? Yes, probably. You could probably fly, who knows, right? That's not what makes heaven so cool. God is what makes heaven so cool. Verse four, of course, he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither thou should be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he, pa- and he who is seated on the throne, oh, Who's that? Who's that? Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. Now listen, all through this story, what Jesus has done, this is the only time he created ex nihilo. Right? Everything else he's done, he's redeemed. He's fixed something that was broken. He's improved something that was broken, okay? So when we hear of this new heavens and new earth, don't think... This one is gonna get burned up and he's creating a new one. Think of if this one, this one gets burned up like a fire, like, like gold gets burnt up in a, in a smelt, right? Or when you're burning it, you're purifying it. Think of God redeeming this cosmos, not him just throwing it away and starting it over. And that has huge ecological impacts, theological ecological impacts. If this world is just gonna burn up anyways, then who cares? Throwing my McDonald's wrappers out the window, right? But no. We we don't do that because we believe he's going to renew this cosmos and God cares about this creation. Keep reading. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. Mm. Those will be good words to hear. It is done. See, right now, Jesus said it is finished. The work of our salvation is finished, but there's a whole lot of work to be done. A whole lot of work of renewal, redemption, preaching, restoration. But The last chapter, Jesus says it's done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet there. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, this is how the story ends. Or the new story begins. Let's just say that. This is the last, the last and the final chapter. This is the reality of an eternal life either with God or away from God. And away from God is hell. That's where this thing is going. Jesus ushers in this new heaven and new earth, a totally renewed cosmos. And I want, you to, I want to hear this. This is accomplished by who? God. By Jesus. Okay? This is not utopia created through social programs that man invent. This is the expected end, the promised, prophesied end of all things, because God started it and God finishes it. All right? So God, God is what the Bible's about. Jesus is what the Bible is about, not primarily us and our work. Okay? All right. Any questions on that? I'm gonna give you a 10 minute break here and then I've got some other, then we've got one more session here. Any questions on, so this is it. This is the Christian story, the Christian worldview from 30,000 foot. All those questions about life, this is how we answer them. Every other worldview answers those questions differently. I can't teach you the counterfeits until I teach you the original, okay? So this is reality here. Everything else is a lie.